Welcome to Sparkler Podcast number 12. Uh, this episode, we are doing another creator roundtable, sort of discussion of process and uh, books that have been uh, that have run in Sparkler and uh, a little bit about the creators behind them. So today we are lucky enough to be joined by Ellery Prime, who is the author of Gauntlet. Ellery, say hi. Hello. And Jen Grunigan, the author of Skyglass. Jen, you can say hi as well. Hi. <laughs> I'm going to have them both start by sort of summarizing their books for you guys, for any Sparkler readers who haven't read any of them. Uh, interestingly, Gauntlet was the first book to begin and end in Sparkler Monthly, and Skyglass, I think, is the most recent book to begin and end in Sparkler Monthly. So between the two of them, um, both Ellery and Jen kind of ran over, <laughs> you know, something like 26 issues of Sparkler between them. So they kind of represent um, a wide swath of the, uh, of the magazine's running time. Also, I'm pretty sure Skyglass took over the Gauntlet slot. Do you remember, Jen? I th I think so. Yeah. I think. I, I th could be wrong. I think so, too. So you guys are kind of like you were carrying on the same uh, <laughs> space. <laughs> uh, so let's start with Ellery and Gauntlet. How would you describe that in like a paragraph to your readers? Well, I kind of like how Sparkler described it as survival horror romance novel. <laughs> but I always told like my friends that there actually wasn't that much horror or <laughs> romance or it was kind of like, well, like Mr. Bennett says, I think in Pride and Prejudice, something like a girl likes to be crossed in love now and then gives her something to think about and gives her a sort of distinction among her friends. Mm -hmm. to paraphrase so yeah the romance is more of that sort than um a happily ever after kind of romance but uh i think it's kind of a down the rabbit hole kind of experience i guess um but no magic or supernatural but kind of um uh let's see can i say bad words um yeah, oh, yeah sure <laughs> mind fuck yeah there you go. Thing. that was kind of what i was going for so yeah, it's kind of like a surreal mindfuck and uh, with a little bit of survival and a little bit of romance, I guess. <laughs> well, the, the basic premise is uh, Cleo, who's the main character, yes. um, ends up sort of uh, she's walking down the street sort of in the city one night and she ends up getting kind of chased into this building. I guess. Yeah, she gets she goes. Yeah, she goes into an area that maybe she should have stayed out of. And yeah, uh, things People <laughs> come out at night and she gets herded kind of into the gauntlet by uh, some a couple of interesting characters, the Jacks. Mm -hmm. Black Jack, Red Jack. It's got a yes. very Alice in Wonderland vibe to it, at least at first. So, yeah, basically, Cleo goes in the gauntlet in chapter one and <laughs> chapters two <laughs> through ten is her trying to get out of the gauntlet. Yeah, she kind of just hurdles through it. I, there's not kind of like throughout, I think, conventional pacing. <laughs> And then she just kind of keeps stumbling from thing to thing without really having a chance to catch her breath. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I would say that's excellent pacing. One of the most common pieces of feedback we received, especially in the beginning when Gauntlet started, was people were like, oh, my God, like, it's it's a thriller. Like, I really want to know where she ends up. It, the Gauntlet, you know, we're not going to spoil things here on this podcast, hopefully, but the nature of the Gauntlet keeps changing. Like, uh, the reason we use survival horror romance novel and... and I agree with you. It's, it's not really a perfect way to describe the book, but it <laughs> kind of captures a couple of the elements of it. And that survival horror is a little bit more like, um, it's less like full-on horror and more you are abandoned in a creepy area and you're trying to just sort of get out and, and keep your head up and stay alive. And although the danger in Gauntlet is not as strong as something in like a zombie survival horror. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I've always wanted to write one of those too. <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing really stopping you. I, I actually knew... <laughs> 
there was somebody I was trying to get to read a gauntlet and review it. She's a friend of mine who has a podcast and she said it was too scary. <laughs> like, I guess the psychological horror was a little bit, you know, it's all yeah. dark uh, passageways. Well, that, that's nice to hear. It's a bit surprising, but yes, nice to hear that someone was affected that way. Oh, yeah. Then, uh, Jen, let's have a description from you of Skyglass. Oh, boy. So, Skyglass is post-apocalyptic science fiction about a anorexic, aromantic, asexual drummer named Moss, um, who is just struggling to stay alive after his parents' double suicide. And his home is invaded by Phoenix, who is a fire elemental turned human pop star, who... <laughs> Lands on Earth, um, commandeers Moss's apartment, and uh, decides to set up her home base for hunting down and murdering her father. And yeah, there's uh, lots of sex. Um, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll, really. Sex, yeah. Uh, cyber elves, unrequited love, um, pyromaniacal space cats, and... Lots of just general weirdness that I'm always amazed that Leanne let me get away with. Um, <laughs> That's why we like Skyglass. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Sometimes I would just, during line edits, I would just read things and be like, that didn't get cut? What? <laughs> it was always kind of amazing and glorious, but... We were, for a while, I think we were um, comparing it to Ayaza was Nana, that, uh, mm -hmm. that rock star manga, only if it were like in space with glam elves. Uh, yeah, that was definitely an influence, I must admit. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the band element. So Skyglass is the name of uh, Moss's band. Phoenix, she becomes the manager, I guess you would say. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Without permission, but yeah. that happens. What I like about Skyglass is you have this incredible backdrop of this post-apocalyptic world where a lot of post-apocalyptic or dystopian fiction kind of focuses on either nature won, <laughs> won the battle against mankind or mankind completely obliterated nature. You have this really beautiful um, cohabitation where basically Earth's technology sort of runs on plant energy. Yeah, why don't you ex kind of explain that? <laughs> I will try my best. Um, so basically, the elves in Skyglass are not actually elves. They're just humans who have this strange ability to commune with plants and so um, they meditate with biomass and energize the plants that way and then the plants uh, like store that excess energy in rhizomes which are harvested by the city to power the city basically. Um, it's not a, uh, a choice for the elves, it's mandatory, so there's a lot of social discomfort, to say the least, among the elves, um, because they are forced to do this. So that's sort of another dark thing going on in the background of the story. Yeah, it's basically slavery. But yeah, basically. I find that really interesting that you, um, you had this sort of positive feedback loop of like, humans, a certain type of human who go by elves, because they get genetically modified. It's almost like calling them a certain class mm -hmm. that they power the plants kind of and then the plants power electricity so and all of it there's this big social question there about you know the slavery and the ethics of it obviously and then you know they're a different class of human so you have all these social elements built into how the technology is advanced and then furthermore you have these settings which you know your illustrator Mookie did a really great job bringing these to life where you yeah, have these definitely 
futuristic, you know, technology and this crazy looking, you know, nightclubs and city streets. And there's just like plants growing in and out of the walls everywhere. There's just like shrubbery sneaking between cracks in the walls and like, you know, lights and trees and stuff because they're all sort of feeding into each other. And that's Mm -hmm. I think that's very rare that somebody manages to have to imagine that kind of a future where, you know, it's. An idea that we have now, which obviously humans have a <laughs> have a, a cooperative relationship with nature sometimes. Sometimes it's, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> contentious and or yeah. sometimes we pave things and sometimes nature like wipes us out. But you kind of took that to the next level and, and integrated technology into that. So um, and that's something that we might be doing a new cover for the um, paperback. And we were sort of talking mm-hmm. about some ideas. By the way, I think your idea for the paperback cover is excellent. Uh, we won't go Yay. into it now, but yeah. Um, <laughs> And one of the things when we all the editors were sitting around discussing Skyglass, we were like, wow, we really want that setting to be in the, mm-hmm. in, in the illustrations as much as possible because you dr- mm-hmm. describe them so vividly. I'm, I'm glad that it was uh, successful in regards to that. I mean, to be honest, it was kind of just a self-gratuitous embodiment of my fantasy of what the Earth should be, which is basically <laughs> just like being taken over by plants and sort of, um, I don't know, just the sort of anti-anthropocentric vision i guess mm. i just like plants a lot so <laughs> <laughs> that was just my excuse to write about them no it's great i think both of you both of your books have a very strong setting element to them obviously the gauntlet is <laughs> like a prison sort of um <laughs> as cleo sort of makes her way through levels of the gauntlet it changes drastically there's basically people already in there some who are there by choice and some who are not there are people who are wandering around kind of like zombies that they may or may not be people who couldn't get out and kind of went nuts. And then there are people with very evolved survival mechanisms and all kinds of stuff. So as she goes in there, you know, your setting is the backdrop. And obviously it's, you know, the gauntlet is a very important character in the book. But once she gets in there, then we start bumping into other characters. And this is something that I think both of you guys did really well. When you have this important setting and then you narrow in and kind of talk about the people in there. Ellery, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Cleo, because maybe more than most other Sparkler novels, you do have a really strong um, focus on your on your main character, that this is really a, a journey of identity for her in a way that, you know, more of our, our our books have kind of ensemble casts or like, you know, there's a it's about a couple, it's about three people, it's about whatever. But yeah. Gauntlet is really about Cleo, like very strongly, even though there are other people in there. How would you sort of describe her what you were trying to do with her first of all let me just say that the whole gauntlet thing kind of was based on like these recurring dreams slash nightmares i've had my whole life whoa so you know i definitely wanted to do that type perspective because i just think it that's how you get the feel of the experiences that she's having you know you need that sort of tighter perspective but i mm. wanted someone so i i just i just wanted to kind of have her be this person who's kind of a blank slate Kind of, a, I mean, she's young mm-hmm. and she's not very experienced, and she's kind of boring, frankly. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, not in the sense that she hasn't developed any sense of herself yet. Really, she sort of has an idea of what she wants to be, or I'm not not what she wants to be, but that she wants to be more than she is. So, mm-hmm. you know, kind of <laughs> when when I first start writing her and reading her, I'm just kind of like, uh, she's kind of just there. But that was kind of that was deliberate. Mm. But I was kind of worried that readers wouldn't like her because she is kind of sort of empty at the beginning. But she has, I think that's also in contrast to this like horrible situation that she's fallen into. And everyone else is so much more interesting than her. 
You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think I, wa- I just wanted her to go in and be like a, a real person who would like, we talk about this being survival horror, but she's not like the person that would play survival horror video games. She's a person mm-hmm. that just is kind of clueless. And so she has to react to everything from this sort of clueless position mm-hmm. and figure out basically just by the seat of her pants, how she's going to proceed, how she's going to, who she's going to believe, what she's going to to do. So yeah, I basically wanted to take someone who is like really kind of nothing at the beginning. And, you know, I guess it's kind of a cliche that she kind of uh, becomes more interesting. She find you know, figures out for herself that she can be, she can reinvent herself. That's the thing about the gauntlet. What I think about fantasy, when you find, you know, when you read fantasy, where you find yourself in another world or a situation, the great thing about it is nobody knows you and you can, anything goes and you can reinvent yourself mm-hmm. or slash find yourself. And so that's kind of what she's she's doing there. I mean, it's a really cliche trope, I know, but... Well, yeah, but the, yeah. there's there's a lot of value to having a character who's kind of a cipher. If the whole point is you want somebody to feel like they're there and that the character is reacting sort of from a place of disbelief or naivete, you know, to be more immersive for the, for the yeah, writer. Yeah, immersive, that's a good word. Yeah, and I think about, like, so many of these survival horror video games, they always have, like, the white, square-jawed everyman with five o'clock shadow... <laughs> who kind of goes in and there's zombies. He's like, what am I going to do? He grabs a shotgun. He's like, am I enough of a man to shoot all these zombies? And, you know, whatever. So I think that that idea has been done a lot with men and male characters. I think that, like, the different kinds of Mary Sues who exist out there, and as we've kind of gone over in earlier podcasts, we don't really have anything against Mary Sues. We think they're kind of unfairly um, shat upon yeah. because, you know, people hate girls, basically, because, right. like, Batman <laughs> is a Mary young Sue. girls do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, now, there are a couple different types of Mary Sue's, and one of them is, like, she's perfect at everything without even trying, and the other type is just, it feels a little bit like self-insert, like, it's, like, uh, somebody who's pretty normal, and you put them in a situation and character is living a life that you want to lead. I think it works really well in this case. Um, there are some every woman qualities to Cleo, especially at that age, where she feels confident but not confident you know she's trying to expand her horizons uh i I think one the moment that really kind of sold the book to me besides you know i thought the premise was kind of neat was in the beginning when she's walking down the streets and things sort of you know it's starting to turn dark people are starting to get a little weird around her she's starting to get eyed by more men you know she starts hearing teenage boys you know cackling nearby and yeah. she starts feeling very uncomfortable and unsafe and starts sort of thinking about escape routes while simultaneously being like, no, 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 I'm overreacting. Like, I shouldn't. I, I can't live my life in fear. It's ridiculous. I'm, and I think that's something that literally every single woman has gone through <laughs> oh, yeah. when they walk down a city street. I think that very – I think that uniquely feminine experience of, of the way that you are treated and feel in a public space – where you can go from feeling totally confident to, you know, somebody makes googly eyes at you and all of a sudden you feel naked and exposed and uncomfortable and unsafe. Um, exactly. Not to say that people who, you know, people who do not identify as women don't go through that, but I think every woman has gone through that. Yeah. Um, that, yes, all women tag on Twitter a while ago talking about, you know, shit that kind of universally women go through. And I think that makes Cleo immediately so relatable, too. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something. That all women go through. Although I will say that writing this, I wanted, I didn't want to play up that aspect of, say, sexual peril, you mm-hmm. know, because I, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be about that. So yeah, the discomfort, yeah, I wanted to, to show that. But especially when she got inside, I tried to have a threat there, but especially with the guys in 
inside the gauntlet. I didn't want to um, overplay that, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. I, I just didn't want to go the whole woman in sexual peril route, you know. Yeah. So I tried to make it make it seem like, I mean, well, I, I don't want to say too much, but do you feel like that that was? Oh yeah, no, the balance was okay on that. Oh yeah, I definitely do, and I think that I remember you discussing that that you were worried about the the danger element kind of keeping it in check. Like, what kind yeah. of danger is she in? Like, she's not really in danger for her life. She's not really in danger of being raped, but she's in a different yeah. kind of danger. Um, and I think you did that very well. And I agree with you that the woman in sexual peril thing not that that can't be explored in a really meaningful way of course but yeah that if I that's just not didn't the story, go that heavy <laughs> yeah you know, for, for this and if that's not the story that you want to tell yeah. but i think that having that moment in the first chapter you know there was a little bit of a sexual element to it but it wasn't just that it was more like feeling a unsafe. physical danger of some sort basically. yeah exactly yeah. especially since women are kind of taught from a young age like you know, look for these warning signs always and be aware yeah. yeah you know <laughs> put your keys between your fingers when you're walking in your car and all these ways that we're trained to sort of, quote unquote, protect ourselves from all the predators out there. And then, of course, she goes into the gauntlet and <laughs> she kind of perpetually <laughs> feels that way, um, even though, like you said, the uh, the sexual element isn't isn't as strong. I mean, I want it to be more creepy. Than, yes. Yeah. You know, and like, oh, my, you know, is this real? What's happening rather than focus on that? And the, more of a know, mental, a mental, you know, mind game. Not to say that oh. there's not sex in the book because there is yeah. sex in the book. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we 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 called it a romance novel as well for a reason, even though I think romance yeah. novel readers would read it and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, it did have it did have strong romance novel elements, even if it wasn't altogether a romance novel. Yes. Um, some dudes she finds in the gauntlet, some hot dudes. <laughs> and various things that happened with those dudes. Yeah. The hardest thing was like I kept wanting to mash different characters together that were not <laughs> together in the, the story itself. Oh, you were shipping them all with each other? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like... It didn't happen. They're in a very close society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of those incestuous type situations where everyone has to be messing around with everyone else. Like yeah. a close circle of friends, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or enemies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Cherry Bomb is for. <laughs> yeah. So, Jen, uh, regarding Skyglass again, the um, how you kind of took settings, uh, you know, you had this really strong setting and then you dove in and focused on especially your main two characters moss and phoenix uh which is partially me forcing you to do that a little bit (laughs) editorial (laughs) that's okay it worked out for the best well they are really not only are they good characters on their own that moss is kind of this he's sort of a mess um in a very (laughs) relatable way (laughs) i was putting it lightly yeah i mean like he's he's not some of the troubled characters and some of the other stuff that we're running they are actively hurting people around them. They're, you know, they're violent or whatever. He's he's not like that. Um, he can be a little bit, he can hurt people emotionally a little bit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so Moss and Phoenix's dynamic is kind of what the book is about, too. Not just them separately, but how mm-hmm. they are kind of parallel. They have sort of parallel character development and they, they're involved in each other's lives. It's basically kind of a odd couple story, like a weird roommate story. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, how would you kind of describe what you sort of did with them together and separately? Uh, I suppose in some ways, Moss is sort of the embodiment of the passive character, at at least at first, um, because he's basically trying to extricate himself from life as much as possible without actually extricating himself from life via death, Mm. though he gets pretty close occasionally, whereas 
Phoenix is sort of his dialectic opposite where she is extremely active. I mean, that she's driven by her purpose. And when they cross paths, I don't want to say that they balance each other out. It's more of a constant tug of war where Phoenix is, well, one, she's just trying to annoy Moss constantly because she likes to be antagonizing. But she is also just trying to figure him out because she doesn't she doesn't understand him because I mean here she is attempting to kill her father as compared to Moss who is completely emotionally destitute because his parents are dead so they're coming mm-hmm. from very very different places and um they learn from one another it's a uh, kind of a rough journey but and it's really funny too like it sometimes it's <laughs> terrible and other times it's funny and sometimes it's terrible and funny at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Phoenix is just really not a nice person, which is good because it she gives Moss kind of a kick in the ass because everyone else, especially Marco, who is Moss's boss, but Marco is also just terribly, terribly in love with Moss. And at first Moss doesn't realize this and things get... <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but, um, every, you know, everybody just is walk, you know, walking on eggshells around Moss because they, they worry for him, um, but they also just don't know how to handle him because he's extremely depressed and very rarely eating. And Phoenix, who, well, first of all, doesn't really know how to act around humans, period. So she just has no barriers whatsoever. And that, of course, embodies itself in very interesting ways. So yeah, she has no filter. And she tells Moss exactly what is on her mind. And they're in an interesting situation where they don't really care about each other. And because they don't care about each other, they actually, that somehow strangely facilitates care for each other even though it comes at first from a place of apathy but i think they both appreciate the fact that they can just speak very boldly to one another about each other's really fucked up shit Mm. um yeah it it worked really well that they're like you said that there's sort of apathy the fact that they don't know each other that well gives them sort of a little bit of freedom to yell at each other kind of be like you know what your Mm. problem is (laughs) yeah Especially since Phoenix's issue, Phoenix is very impulsive and very pushy in a way that, you know, she sort of sets things on fire around her and she's uh, literally, yeah, literally. And she's always trying to kind of, you know, get rid of her human skin and destroy all the humans around her. I I think this was especially for people who read the Cherry Bomb prequel Cinder Seed, which is basically about when she first wakes up as a human because she was part of the sun before Mm -hmm. so that she's always like uh, sort of wrapped rattling her cage and is running around and is like, I'm going to destroy all this and I'm going to get rid of this human body and kill my father and, and explode everything. But that's not a healthy path either, <laughs> even though her yeah, father's well, and, a dick, you know? Yeah, well, exactly. And that's a thing that, well, it was, it was difficult writing about Phoenix because what her father did was basically like kidnap her from her home, the, the son, and force her into a body that she never wanted um, and should never have had. I mean, he's just a very, very fucked up individual that did terrible things to her. So it's completely legitimate that she reacts to the world and humans the way she does and has no sense of human morality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for her. Um, but at the same time, despite what 
was done to her, I mean, there's still semi-decent people in the world, a couple, <laughs> and just a few. But interacting with Moss, who isn't, I mean, he's a pretty good person, but he's very wrapped up in, in himself and his issues um, in the beginning and mid parts of the novel. But um, I think Phoenix finding someone like him and the rest of the band who eventually she becomes friends with help her balance herself out a little bit and mm -hmm. um, teach her to funnel her, her rage towards the uh, people or person who probably actually deserves it rather than just spewing it absolutely everywhere <laughs> igniting everything in her path yeah <laughs> usually with um murderous results yeah i think actually i had you remove a couple murders <laughs> i i think there was a more than a couple especially in <laughs> in cinder seed the the prequel there i think in the first version no one on that ship survived yeah and then Leanne made me revive <laughs> them <laughs> which so i understand i know it's like how dare you <laughs> keep people alive in these stories but um, to a degree there's yeah. sort of we have like these meters um on the, you know on the side of the editorial that as staff we discuss things that are or aren't sympathetic and it's, you know it's a subjective meter obviously what makes somebody sympathetic versus what makes them unsympathetic but it's something that we had to employ a lot when we were going through for example submissions when we get all these you know so many of the stuff that come through the submission process how good is the character so many of the things that we look at how strong is their character how likable is their character how sympathetic is their character and there are a lot of people who i feel will write a character who's so reprehensible in a and not in like a likable way like you like to hate them anything where it's just you're like oh this person like if i knew this person in real life they'd be sort of repulsive and or just like in little ways that you're like oh this person would be really annoying or whatever like it's it's something that we look for almost immediately like that's kind of a deal breaker some people obviously can revise it and make it better but it's something that we're constantly thinking about we want these characters to be likable and engaging and sympathetic even if they're not good people like they could be bad people and they can still be sympathetic we want them to be human but we also don't want them to be grating you know i think a little bit about like piper from orange is the new black and how i really struggled to watch that show because i found her so unbelievably unlikable and unengaging yeah that you don't want to be stuck with something like that where you have a great ensemble cast even though you know that show has problems but does have a good ensemble cast at the very least and i feel like piper yeah. was really dragging it down yeah and that's actually something that frustrated me and I also feel like it's kind of the opposite of the sort of growth of Moss's character, where with Piper, especially in the, the last season, I feel like she's becoming more and more distant and unlikable. Whereas with what I tried with Moss, even though he's extremely passive, um, he does move to being a more active and likable character because instead of like becoming less aware of his distance and just sort of assholeness towards <laughs> certain <laughs> assholeness that's a terrible Assholery. awkward work assholery <laughs> i'm not sure that that's any better it is better yeah he, he becomes more aware of how much of a little shit he is towards people whereas piper is just becoming more and more oblique i guess towards people and not in a likable or sympathetic way yeah and i i think that yours was a really good case where your your book is dealing with very difficult people who are overall likable and sympathetic even when they're doing bad things uh we you just needed a little tweaking and even then again it was subjective but i was like mm. How much murder really should be for this I know. Well, which is fine because yeah. you, your revisions, I will say that like every writer is kind of good at some things, bad at some other things or, or whatever, strengths, weaknesses. Your revisions were always like remarkable. Um, when you first submitted the book, see, unlike Gauntlet, which actually when it came in, we're like, yeah, all right. <laughs> like, you know, you have it plotted pretty well. Uh, you know, I, this ending is 
kind of a mind fuck. I like the idea of it. I'll believe it when I see it a little bit. And then by the time <laughs> it got to that point in the book, I'm like, yep, I believe it. Great job. Skyglass, we ended up really retooling it a lot when you, uh, after you first submitted it. Mm-hmm. One of our first tests for a lot of writers is we say, you know, can you restructure and resubmit keeping these things in mind? And it was pretty drastic some of the stuff I was asking you to do. Yeah. And you yeah, not only did it, but like the new version, I was like, oh my God, holy shit. It's like, <laughs> she totally gave it a totally new energy. You know, you totally worked within your new confines. You didn't, you know, fight over piddly stuff or anything. Yeah. It was just sort of, you're re- willing to kind of refresh it. And mm-hmm. so whenever there were issues throughout the book as we were revising, and I'm like, can you redo this? You always handed me back something really great. Revising is a very difficult skill and not everybody can do it, especially, you know, when you're working with an editor or a company that mm-hmm. has <laughs> directives. You know, we do have, you know, some directives that are based on marketing or readership or whatever. But I think just also on a creative level, your revisions were so, they're so great, so satisfying, so interesting. You kind of came at it from a new angle. Skyglass, the original version, was kind of, could have been three or four books on its own. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> well, I mean, the email that I got from you was, it was probably like the best rejection letter that I've received thus far, <laughs> just because, and this is the strange thing about me. I, and maybe it's why I'm relatively successful with, with edits is because I always, every time I got my line edits, I was like, yes, line edits. I'm not <laughs> sure that's a reaction that writers should have. But yeah, the rejection letter that I initially received from you was just like paragraphs and paragraphs long. And before I even read it, I just saw how massive it was. I was like, oh, this is a good thing. Because, you know, it meant that you were invested in the book, even if you didn't want it initially. And I don't know, I suppose for me, I just, I I mean, I, I have a certain amount of maybe not faith, but belief or something in my ideas. But I also have a lot of respect for editors and their own knowledge and ideas. And also, maybe I'm also just being a little bit tricksy by agreeing to most of your suggestions that way when I want to make my own, <laughs> then they just kind of like slide in under the table. Yeah, that's a great uh, strategy, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I accept the ones that I think it's like i can put up with those ones but then when i have yeah another murder slips into the book (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) yes exactly yes you didn't even notice some of those um no but i mean in in all honesty i do have great respect for other people's reactions and opinions of my work because i don't know everything amazingly enough so i like to work with that and I think it's also just a challenge, you know, finding out what what doesn't work. And even if I disagree with that, trying to sort of route a new way to change things up and usually rethinking a part that even if I am satisfied with it, usually giving it another pass will ultimately make it better. So there's not really any harm in edits ever, mm. ever. That's a really good attitude to have uh, if you want to be a professional writer. Because I think one thing, and I'm going to open up the floor to you guys kind of discuss together, mm-hmm. um, that I think prose is has the lowest barrier of entry for anything that we publish. Just about anybody can open up a Word document and start typing. And as a result, I think there are a lot of people who sort of fantasize about being a writer someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, I think we get people interested in the publishing side of it. Like, what does it take to be published? What is working with an editor like? There are a lot of people who are really terrified of working with an editor. You know, of course, we get certain people who are scared that, you know, submit to a company, they might steal your idea, which, you know, I'm sure that's happened before but like i'm sure it's happened at some point but it's not really the general way the publishing industry yeah, works yeah i mean because that that just is a lot of work because then they have to yeah. actually that idea 
Which, exactly. Yeah. So I think that you guys um, sharing your experience of kind of what it's like to be a, a professional working writer. And Ellery, you, you had been published a couple times before. before yeah, Dallin. just mainly like short stuff, erotica, <laughs> <laughs> which is not that hard to get published. I believe me, I've read a lot of really bad stuff out there. Um, it's not that impressive. But yeah, I, I had editors in that situation, too. Yeah, what was your experience like in that? Like, did you pitch to someone? Did you know somebody? Did they scout you? No, you know, I just decided one day that I, I want to see if I can get published. So <laughs> that was, you know, I'm pretty heavily involved in uh, a couple of fandoms. And so I just knew other people who had mentioned, you know, people they knew had, you know, gotten published in some of the erotica presses. So I just looked at them, read their, you know, sometimes they do specific calls for certain themes and things like that. I think I did submit, I submitted to a couple of anthologies and then I just did this one. I just wrote something and submitted it. I, can't, I don't think it was for a particular theme. <laughs> it was about demons. Mm-hmm. Um, not not like, you know, like Judeo-Christianity demons, but, you know, like hot, sexy de- <laughs> demons, basically. And then I did a vampire one and then I just, just did a straight two gay guys in New York win, basically. But the editing process was really good. I mean, I had, it was two different presses, so I had two different editors. And it was, uh, they gave very clear, they had very clear requirements, um, very clear editing instructions. So I was painless to me. And you, I feel like (laughs) sometimes, you know, I've written things serially before, but of course not as a job, which there's more pressure, of course. And... (laughs) I did not have the story all mapped out. I don't know if you remember, but you approached me to pitch to you. And yeah, you were I, scouted. I am so jealous of all these people who have like the novel sitting in their <laughs> desk drawer <laughs> that they can whip out and go here because I did not have that. So I kind of had to come up with something, you know, by the seat of my pants. And, you know, I, I did an outline and I had, you know, the basic idea and I had ideas and everything for bits and pieces. But pulling it all together on a schedule can be very stressful. <laughs> and sometimes it, it's uh, the procrastination gets to you and you have your deadline looming up. And then, you know, I have those big trough moments where my friend Susie, she's my my beta person, my soundboard, you know, I just send her a million emails wailing and crying and not literally crying, but sort of. <laughs> and she would she was like always she's the best. Flatters me so much. She's sincere about it, but she flatters me way too much. My <laughs> ego, you know, she she pets my ego and gets me gets me going again. But I would be okay, I just can't write anymore. I'm just gonna give this to Leanne and then I'm like then it's like, okay, Leanne's going to handle it. <laughs> If it really sucks, I know Leanne will help me make it better so I can stop stressing out about it. So I really, I really enjoy the editorial process. I mean, some things you're, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that is so much better. And then it was very, very rare that I was like, you know, I don't think you kind of got what I was going there for where I'd have to come back to you. Uh, most of the time, I, th- I found your edits really really helpful. So I, I, I really like the editorial process. It's really great to have someone there who can kind of shore you up, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I think that you can get stuck with a bad editor, but I think that's relatively rare. Like you can get an editor that's ineffective. I think um, you can get an editor that's lazy. Th- those are fairly common in terms of like bad editors. But I think there's a misconception out there that a lot of editors are sort of failed writers or wannabe writers who are using writers to kind of get their ideas to the world. And they want to, you know, they have a vision in their head for something. And they're like, I want the writer to conform to my idea. And <laughs> it's so rare that I've run into people <laughs> like that. Like I've definitely met some people who are better at writing than editing or vice versa if they did both. I mean, I think the thing that we try to do with Sparkler is because... 
I have a lot more experience writing than I do editing, but the writing that I did for so many years was adaptation and rewriting of existing scripts. So it was combination writing and editing at the same time I had material and I was sort of rewriting it. So one thing that we, you know, because Sparkler does not pay a lot, as everyone knows, uh, we pay advances, but you know, you're not going to quit your day job on them, um, <laughs> is that we wanted to be able to assist people. Uh, as much as we could. And as an example, Lillian, who works in comics, she does some of the bubble layout and uh, types in scripts and stuff for some of the comics people. In audio department, Rebecca is the editor. She does, you know, she edits people. She'll record people who are sometimes in different countries, you know, go to them, <laughs> put a microphone in their face, direct them, and then splice them together in the editorial process, sometimes taking two, you know, two takes of the same line and clipping the first half to the second half and to make it sound like they're in the same room with someone else. Or even just, you know, she voiced a lot of extras herself if she couldn't get somebody. We wanted to at least make the process a little bit easier for you guys where we could. And also so we could take people at all scale levels because we really liked having open submissions. And we'd like to do them again if the magazine gets a bigger readership because we're sort of filled up right now that there's some people who just really need to be polished, but they have such potential. And especially as a new press and alt press. That's something that we felt we could, you know, we were really interested in sort of raw talent because to get an editor to work with you very carefully on something, generally, unless you're being published, that's something that you hire someone to do. You hire a freelance editor and it can be very expensive. (laughs) But like you guys, my first experience as a writer in in the publishing industry, I had an editor who worked with me kind of on a line to land level. And I was like, wow, I learned like 10,000 times faster than I did in school or even through beta reading, just having somebody go through and be like by every line say, no, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then sometimes rearrange your sentences or whatever the case may be. So I'm I'm glad that you guys liked that because uh, our biggest fear is always send back that first chapter and it's just a wash in red (laughs) font. It's like, like, it's not that we don't think you're a great writer. This is just all the ways that we're going to change it. You need a thick skin and a lot of people don't have a thick skin. So that's going to be a really hard hurdle for people to get over if they're they're thin skin when it comes to their writing and changing it or just hearing criticism. Yeah. And I I think if somebody wants to work professionally, I mean, obviously Sparkler's editorial is going to be different from, you know, Harlequin's editorial is going to be different from Simon & Schuster's editorial, but that is a key element that they have to not take it personally and sort of, as Jen had been saying earlier, using it kind of as an opportunity to look at things again or or wrangle things or kind of be happy, I guess, to see. (laughs) And it's uh, like, I mean, that's really great because that more and more people are going to want to work with you if you're always willing to work with a company because, you know, the sort of the boring stuff that we take care of on the other end, which is like, well, will people buy this? And again, it, it kind of, some of the stuff we had, how sympathetic you know, how, how many things can somebody do before they're unsympathetic, blah, blah, blah. A lot of that stuff we actually discuss as a team, like the editors will get together. If I'm really stuck, I'll go to another editor. If we're talking about directives for the book overall, especially in the pitch process, which both of you went through, we were like, you know, what do we see as being could be, become a problem? I will say that, Jen, you had said sort of Moss being a mess. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. We found that a lot of people who were aromantic and or asexual were really rallying around him that they mm-hmm. and not just an issue of representation. I think the way that you wrote him and wrote specifically sort of his problems, his fears, I think, too. Mm-hmm. His relationship with Marco and how it was, you know, this was always obviously a factor in the relationship as being yeah. a romantic and or asexual will be. So there were, there were elements where I was like, I wasn't entirely sure about Moss, certain things, you know, or I, you know, I didn't want to completely mangle what you were trying to get across. But there were some things that I was mm-hmm. like a little bit on the fence about and we published it. And there were a lot of people like, oh, my God, this is really important. I'm really glad I'm reading this. I, I can totally relate. I mean, and that's really great because i think that a romantic asexual is very underrepresented as a viewpoint yeah thoroughly underrepresented well sex sells right so it's yeah. kind of <laughs> well that was one thing that i was really really worried about 
and trying to tread extremely carefully with because even though Moss is aromantic and asexual, there is a sexual dynamic to his and Marco's relationship. Mm-hmm. And trying to navigate that with respect to who Moss is as a person could be very, very tricky. And I I don't want to give any spoilers away, (laughs) but discussions that I had with you, Leanne, and also comments that were appearing via Twitter and so on and so forth um, just kind of reminded me how the novel needed to end. Um, Mm -hmm. And so something that I had been kind of focusing on for the end didn't actually end up happening. I don't know how exactly to be more specific without (laughs) giving anything away. But basically just navigating Moss's sexuality because Again, like I said, he you know he does have a sexual relationship, Marco, but it's not so much about sexuality as it is about um, learning to trust someone and find some sort of stability that is through human comfort. And it evolves into a sexual relationship, but it, it's just more about Moss learning to open himself up enough to depend on someone else without the fear of that person disappearing like his parents did. Mm-hmm. And I think and, I yeah. think that's partially what was really speaking to them, not just that you had an ace character, but that it was an ace character who was dealing with a relationship and how incredibly complicated that gets um, and that you yeah. weren't shying away from the difficult stuff. Because I think that, mm-hmm. you know, when I see ace representation in fiction, and again, it's it's underrepresented, yeah. there is a little bit of a tendency where it's like, well, this character just doesn't have a love interest or, you know, kind of turns away, you know, there's a potential mm-hmm. love interest and this person sort of turns that person down. Um, which is a perfectly valid way to go. I mean, like, sure. not you yeah. don't need a love story and everything. But I think trying to do basically a love story with somebody who mm-hmm. was ace, um, I think that's something that was really resonating with people, that they were like, you know, aspects of their relationship that I was like, oh, God, this is tough stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God. And some people were like, no, 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 that's exactly what I want. Like, <laughs> knowing how to, you know, how they're navigating through this and seeing how they're navigating mm-hmm. is really touching me. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's good stuff, yeah, I- Jen. Oh, yay. Well, I mean, <laughs> and it certainly helps that Marco is just like a great big fucking sap and yeah. <laughs> probably the the best person in, in the book, just in terms of like empathy and like listening and so on and so forth. And the way Mookie drew him, he's kind of a looks like a glam lumberjack. I mean, like, it's amazing. <laughs> but just like this giant <laughs> guy. Just it's so wonderful. Like her, her art was really great for this book. But there's something about Marco's yeah. character design. And it's just like, oh, it's, this is so great. I've never seen anybody drawn like yep. this. And I love it. Yeah, I mean, he's like this gigantic elf metalhead but just a huge romantic soft-hearted human being at his core Mm. um and yeah and i definitely (laughs) think monkey's art embodied that very well where he's like this super stunning ruggedly good-looking person but also like really gentle yeah and kind of femme she's got like a a femme edge to everything she does so even her Mm -hmm. big hulking guys have like these long eyelashes and it's just so great Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) yep We thought her art always, you know, looked like glam rock aliens. So when we were reviewing illustrators for Skyglass, we decided to publish it. I don't even know if we got as far as thinking about anyone else other than Mookie. We were like, I, yeah, Mookie's which perfect. Uh, makes perfect sense. Yeah, when when you first sent me uh, her portfolio, I was just like, yep, that is certainly wild enough to embody every aspect of Skyglass. I mean, even just like down to um, Phoenix's pointed teeth. It's like, yes, yeah. of course. Of course, Phoenix <laughs> would have pointy teeth. Actually, that, that's a good 
segue for you guys can talk about your illustrators a little bit because they might be listening to this. <laughs> so, oh, um, Ellery, you had um, T2A, or we're just going to call T for simplicity's sake. She was <laughs> another. So both Mookie and T were recruited specifically. Mookie came recommended by Rem, who does the art for Tokyo Demons and is like an old friend of the staff. T actually just popped up on my Tumblr feed for like. I think it was Hobbit fan art or something. And I think so. I think you showed me some of her stuff. I think I was... Yeah. Yeah, Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah. So we sort of said to her, you know, would you, be, would you be interested? Would you send us like a portfolio or, you know, whatever our requirements were at the time? And she's got kind of a, a really like a shoujo kind of girlish look to her stuff, but it's a little bit creepy, which is like... <laughs> kind of perfect for gauntlet and i mean i think she did a phenomenal job and i i can't imagine anybody else doing the art for gauntlet after that yeah yeah i loved i love what she did i mean she definitely made all the guys look really um attractive <laughs> <And> <laughs> the girls too actually but unique you know not like um cutesy you know yeah. what i mean it had like i guess a more mature kind of mm -hmm. look that I, I thought like that worked really well with the story it wasn't cartoony yeah um, she draws yeah. older characters really well too. Yeah, yeah. And everybody in the gauntlet is like in their hot their hot twenty somethings basically. <laughs> yeah. You did um I I know well Jen Garnigan will go into that in a second. She did a ton of art direction for Mookie. You were giving a lot of the directions for um in Gauntlet too. Weren't you doing art direction for the illustrations? Yeah, I did some like photos and some descriptions and things like that, yeah. Of kind of my gen general idea. That cover idea was yours. The um what ended up becoming, yeah, the where basically Cleo's opening the red door and mm -hmm. there's all that graffiti inside. That ended up being one of our most striking illustrations. We, we did a couple tests where we run conventions and we have a bunch of postcards of like a bunch of different covers and put them out there and see what would go off the table first. And, you know, T definitely had a bit of a following online, but she wasn't didn't have the recognizable art of somebody like Jen Quick or Hamlet Machine or, or some of these people who have a very distinctive style and have been doing comics for a long time. But that picture of Cleo opening the door apparently did really well because this was at a, a convention I wasn't at. And she was like, no, 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 it was that that picture of Cleo and the door that people were like, what is this? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, we were, you know, we'd talked a little bit about either revising that illustration or doing something different for the cover. But by the time the paperback rolled around, we're like, why would we mess with something that is so good? <laughs> and also, I think we ended up using it for a fair amount of sparkler stuff um, in terms of like, you know, welcome to new worlds or something. You know, it's like <laughs> you're opening up a door and all the graffiti says, go back, don't come in, like, beware. <laughs> don't get sucked in. This is a hellhole. <laughs> sort of sparkler to a team, right? <laughs> the character designs were wonderful. The um, That first illustration she did of the two jacks pulling Cleo through the night market, that one we used a lot. I still have my little chibi jack uh, keychain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she does the best chibis. Oh, my God. And the other one, that an illustration that we used over and over and over um, was the one of Cleo wearing her hot new jeans and sort of <laughs> her strappy jeans and she's admiring herself in the mirror. Yeah, and the big sexy boots. Because it's just this wonderful... I mean, if you, if you guys uh, have read Gauntlet, it's chapter three, where um, she's staring at herself in the mirror. This is after Cleo gets to toss her horrible... like White dress. Yeah, she's wearing like, a white sundress. Her prissy little dress. Yes, I was so glad when she was done with that. Oh, yeah. And she found like this... It's like a costume area where she got to pick whatever clothes she wanted. And she picked these kind of traditional sexy lady badass outfit and she's sort of like turned back and looking in the mirror sort of check almost checking out her own ass like in this mirror <laughs> yeah. 
And she looks so confident, and she's, like, it's like a special K ad, except, like, in a terrifying dungeon, like. <laughs> you know, new boots can do that for any girl, you <laughs> yeah. know. So we use... boots. Oh, yeah, I mean, and, you know, functionally, too, because, you know, she's running from drawers yeah. and, and. It's better than sandals and a sundress. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's just, talk about, like, feeling vulnerable in a space. It's like, you don't want to be crawling through the air ducts of a giant terrifying building where all the doors are locked and there's like trap doors and shit like that and she's wearing a sundress <laughs> that just gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier yeah. <laughs> uh, but we ended up using that illustration a lot i think t ended up using it even on our online portfolio because i think she really liked it too but we use that so much because it's just this girl looking in the mirror and she's like oh, oh you and like that, that just uh, that encompassed so much of what we wanted to say. Uh, same thing with the we did a cover. We actually had a guest artist, Romy Chan, uh, who's done a number of things for us. She did, I think it was like chapter eight of Gauntlet or something, where when we used to do full color, unique sparkler covers, she had one that was designed to look like a Cosmo, like a Cosmopolitan, the magazine yeah. cover. <laughs> yeah, where she's in like with with Chance, yes. that picture. Yeah, yeah, that one was awesome. <laughs> so she, there's some point in the book where she's wearing this. She's at like a masquerade ball because, of course, she goes to a masquerade ball at some point because, you know, there's romance novel elements in here. And then well, it's she... also a mask. It's also a mystery. So, yeah. Exactly. Masquerade ball's <laughs> the best. But then she needs to get rid of that dress and go back to her, you know, boots and jeans and stuff. So we designed it to look kind of like a cosmopolitan cover where she's sort of wearing this big red dress and she's tearing through it to show like her fashionable yet functional jeans. But she's in like a dungeon and there's <laughs> like chances reaching the bars behind her and like screaming. So it was kind of a parody on a Cosmo cover. And when Romy sent to us, we just we couldn't stop laughing. We kept sharing it around. We're like Gauntlet was the perfect cover for Sparkle, especially at that time. You know, in the first year, we were trying to say what what is Sparkle? It's supposed to be sort of a lifestyle through fiction magazine, but it's. Messed Trashy up. bodice ripper. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, it, it's it's full of terrible things. And it's funny <laughs> that a lot of people have kind of come to Sparkler for pain. Like, we have a lot of our... <laughs> there's a lot of angst and, and drama and stuff, which, you know, we've lightened up, I think. I think year one was a lot darker than we are now. We have, you know, several comedies running. But the early days, we sort of liked this girl power, only terrible feels, um, <laughs> misery and, and stuff. So we did a lot with that and gauntlet it was fun yeah it was weird to write a girl character because i'd been writing so much you know slash as they mm. used to say <laughs> and uh but i felt obligated to i was like you know given your your mission statement and everything and i was like well i should do this anyway just prove to myself that i can do it <laughs> you know? oh yeah but it was a, it was a departure actually you weren't alone in that there were quite a few of our writers who had the same thing that they're like they're used to writing about men and they're like maybe i should write about a woman this time and i think it sometimes it you know because most people who work for us are women it unlocks something and then they're like oh you know i can write all these things about my own experience that it, it's very easy to slide into writing about men not only does it sometimes sell more you know slash is huge bigger than yeah. femme slash um in some areas bigger than het but a lot of women suffer from how difficult it is to write a female character there's a lot of politics in there there's sometimes stuff that you don't want to address that directly because it, it hurts too much or it's you know too close to home but at the same time you're worried about being a mary sue because there's such a stigma there there's just baggage we had a whole separate podcast about that how, how incredibly difficult it is sometimes but I, I loved cleo and i thought that you know even though she was a little bit of a cipher character supposed to be sort of a little bit of a blank slate i i really liked her. I think that going through all that, seeing how she grew, seeing how she reacted to things, it was very immersive. And, you know, I thought she was likable because 
she was constantly trying to make moral decisions, despite the fact that she was in a bad situation. Yeah. Um, and even though I know there was part <laughs> in chapter six, I believe, when she meets August, there was the collective readership. <laughs> a, a, there's a character named August, who is Prince Charming with a dark side. <laughs> and like the entire readership was like, don't trust him, Cleo. It was really funny. Like all social media was lighting up. They're like, don't go home with this guy. It's the worst. <laughs> Yeah, but if you read those uh, comics that T did afterwards, mm -hmm. you know, at the end, he's just adorable, don't you think? <laughs> you just can't help but like him. Yeah, I definitely like Chance. He was polarizing, but, not, you know. No, I mean August. Oh, sorry. Uh, August, my bad. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, I liked August the best because I like those kinds of characters who are just <laughs> ridiculous. But I think he was a little bit polarizing. Your book in general was quite polarizing. It, it was very entertaining because I like seeing a book that draws an extreme reaction from people. And people were incredibly divided on your ending, which is great because people had really strong opinions on it. They were either like, no, what are you doing? Or like, oh, no, that's the best ending. Or even just people who were like, okay, I got to sit and think about this. <laughs> For a while, because it is a very well, shocking ending, which I think. Well, is great. I kind of I know, I know some people hate the ambiguous ambiguous endings, but I really liked um, the Magus by John Fowles, uh, mm -hmm. and you know his book, of course, is a much bigger, better, huger, you know, <laughs> full length novel, which uh, and very erudite and everything. But he had the ambiguous ending, and, and so I kind of did an homage, <laughs> a little bit of an homage, <laughs> but people hated that. Either people either hated it or loved it, his novel as well. So I, that kind of makes me feel a little bit good. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that reaction. Yeah. And I, I think also with the type of story that Gauntlet is, it's going to be hard to get an ending that satisfies everyone anyway, because it's, yeah. um, it is kind of a mind fuck from start to finish that the whole point of it is that you're constantly questioning it and trying to get out, trying to figure out why the hell is this here? Why are all these who set up this weird building with these micro societies in it that, you know, she gets a mysterious charm bracelet in the beginning, which we made a physical version of for the Kickstarter. Yeah, that, that was really cool. <laughs> and that she, you know, there are elevators that take certain keys from her charm or, or windows or, or whatever the case is to try and get through Alice in Wonderland style slash labyrinth, I guess. A, a labyrinth, not the movie Labyrinth, because there are parallels <laughs> there too. <laughs> um, but the, really the point is the game's the thing, right? Right. You don't, you don't have to ever figure out everything. It's the playing that's fun. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at least that's how I feel about it. Anyway. And I, I thought the, I thought the ambiguities were perfect. Like there are definitely some places where I think people are not going to be satisfied because yeah. of where the ambiguity is, but this was not one of them. So I do think that people who didn't like the ending, although it's a perfectly valid reaction, you know, <laughs> not everybody's going to like it. I, I think that the people who either really did like the ending or, you know, were kind of impressed by how much it made them think, I think the reason it succeeded in that way for those people is because of where you put the ambiguity. It wasn't just like, you know, completely unsatisfying. You you address yeah. certain things, but there's some certain things that you left either up to the imagination or, you know, left up to Cleo or left up to interpretation, which I think is really important that there needs to be a, a degree of interpretation. And this happened a little bit too at the end of Offbeat. The, you know, that series was running for 10 years. We, um, we picked up the license when it uh, was out of print for like five, seven years or something like that. So people were like really excited for the ending. And some people really didn't like it because of the certain degree of ambiguity that was put into it, um, yeah. even though that was always the point of the series. And I think the ending was like brilliant. There are certain series where that's that's the way the ending needs to be. You know, like certain things will be answered, certain things won't be. Some stuff's left to interpretation. Some of it's left up to fandom. You know, it, it depends really on the series. And I think yours was perfect. And I, I also... 
because when you pitched it, I liked that ending, but I was a little bit like, mm, you know, like, let, let's... You didn't think I was going to pull it off? Well, not that I didn't think he was going to pull it off so much as I was a little worried. I wanted to keep my eye open. It was important for me to know in the beginning that's how you wanted to end it, to make sure that we could get to that route. And you definitely proved it by the time we got to the last chapter or two. I'm like, no, no, she, it would totally end like that. That's a perfect ending. So it was more like I was just, I was trying to be aware of it. Um, I mean, I always have a little, I'll believe it when I see it thing, but I don't mean that in like a, I have no <laughs> faith in you way, just like, that's okay. let's, let's evaluate when we get there. I, I've heard some, some mangaka in Japan that talk about like these really long running series where you know, they're like, do you have the ending planned? And some of them are like, yes, but I might have a change of heart, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you kind of need that. And as Jen had said earlier, reader response is really important in these. Getting sort of feedback as you're serializing it because that led to you and your ending, Jen, that, that mm -hmm. you know, influenced that. And I think that's important in a serial. Yeah. You want to talk about Mookie a little bit? Working you and Mookie, my God. Like, the relationship between Ellery and T and, the, you know, the directives for the art was fairly straightforward. But, like, mm -hmm. Jen and Mookie would get on an email thread. I'd go to bed and I'd wake up the next morning and they had written to each other 12 <laughs> times over the course of the night. <laughs> I always felt really bad because I'd be giving Mookie these super specific directions. But she always followed through really, really well. Yeah. Um, she, like, blasted but, through them, too. She did, like, three revisions in I a know, day. so she's so quick yeah <laughs> uh, which is good because i always had these really particular i mean like granted i always kind of enjoyed writing those emails because i was like oh i get to look up cyberpunk lingerie now <laughs> that's nice i'm gonna spend like the next five hours doing you know because i'd i'd give her a bunch of reference images and so on and so forth and i think I think the reason why my why we had that back and forth and why i had these like very, very long, detailed descriptions of everything. It's the one thing I've always been semi-confident in with my writing is sort of descriptive imagery, etc. Yeah, it's um, really good. So, I, you know, I have a pretty good idea of how I want something to look, though, of course, I mean, Mookie had her own spin on things, and it always turned out really, really well. Tweaks and um, her own riffs to... Um, certain aspects of the setting and characters and so on and so forth. But uh, that that said, you know, I, I had an idea of what I wanted and the setting was so sort of thick um, that I kind of had to put a lot of details mm -hmm. in, in there just so everything, you know, because Mookie obviously is not in my head, so she's not as immersed in strange intersection of... Um, plant life and and urban decay that is the city and sky glass mm -hmm. so there's a lot of sort of little tiny details that i i just had to spell out um otherwise sh she would have n no fucking clue of what i i wanted so i had to be super specific no i mean that's fair you you had very elaborate background that was hard to find uh hard to just say draw this nightclub with branches yeah. uh, for a ceiling and like people yeah, are yeah, exactly. eating handfuls of basically glowing bugs <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah you can't really like i mean i some really strange google searches but yeah you can't yeah you can't like go online and do a search for like show me pictures of restaurants that are built into gigantic trees and have a hollow crystal center that have people fucking <laughs> Like in anti gravity. That would be awesome. <laughs> I know. Like it would have made my life so much easier if I could have just like gone on Google Images and was like, "Oh, there's a tree with um, a people having sex in the middle of it." That 
okay, great. That's perfect. Um, unfortunately, nobody's drawn that. So yeah, I had to just kind of find like bits and pieces of what I had in my head and weave them together and be like, I want the tree to look like this. And I want the people fucking to look like this and so on. We didn't actually ever have an illustration of, of that, but maybe we should have. <laughs> that is a very good yes, Leanne, why didn't we have an illustration of that? You both new book cover idea. <laughs> you both had at least one love scene picture, I think. Yes. Did Skyglass Skyglass no, you had a kiss that was pretty both of you, you had, had a kiss a, and a bed scene, I think. Yeah, see yeah, so we we had the kiss and then like Marco shirtless with Marco. There was a lot of Marco in that image. <laughs> like that camera went pretty far down Marco. And I was like, Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah, no, I had I, I had no no complaints about that particular image Dis- at all. <laughs> I will have I want you guys to discuss together what the hardest thing about doing your book um for sparkler was and then what was like the thing that you liked the most so like what was the most difficult and what did you end up liking the most so we'll start with the difficult because i'm really curious what and and be brutally honest like what was the hardest thing of putting your books together anybody can go first (laughs) okay i can go first if you're not (laughs) (laughs) at least for the the hard thing um one thing that I found really hard is though even though you know I've written a lot of fanfic in my day that's when I write original I'm just a totally different mindset and the light novel format was kind of difficult for me to get into I mean I guess when I was thinking of writing original I was thinking of writing kind of like a full novel so it was really hard to get into the light novel format and and to kind of channel myself into writing for the audience that Sparkler was writing for just because it was just kind of hard to transition from the, the, the book or the story that I had in my head to the light novel story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I guess early on, I don't even know, it had to have been early on in the first few chapters, there was some edit. I don't even remember specifically what they were, but I think I was just getting a little bit too much information, too detailed, too esoteric, I don't even know, but too much <laughs> stuff that really didn't fit in with the format and the pacing. Mm-hmm. And I, that was kind of a wrench to give up. I was just kind of like, okay, this is this is not this, it's this. And I just, it was kind of a wrench to get into that format and sort of give up all like sort of this backstory and massive amounts of, <laughs> you know, literary illusions and things, you know, all mm-hmm. the little, all that kind of stuff, you know, that I had in my head that was always in the background as I was writing it, but kind of switching from, I guess, switching modes. That yeah. that was the hardest thing for me. It's just be, to, to get into it and be like, okay, this is what I'm writing. Yeah. If that makes of, sense. I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, no, it totally does. Because yeah. we, we sort of market our prose to comics readers in yeah. a lot of ways. So, you know, people who watch anime or, you know, I mean, not exclusively stuff out of Japan, but, you know, the light novel is a Japanese format and that's sort of the market they, they're they trying to reach. The sort of casual right. readers, more popcorn-y stuff. It, it's less like the, a comparison would be sort of Harlequin here, which is sort of yeah. like, yeah. there's a very specific directive, there's a very specific audience, there's sort of limitations. So yeah, I can, I can totally imagine that would be, <laughs> it's like. The, I didn't get to be, you know, my literary geek, basically, <laughs> that I that I had going on in my mind. But, you know, I don't want to sound like I dislike the light novel format or, or manga or anything. Like I read tons of manga. I, I still read young adult novels. I'll still read kids books sometimes. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't have to read like Moby Dick 
Yeah. <laughs> Although there's a new movie of that coming out, by the way. I saw really? a preview for it. Yeah. Moby <laughs> Dick? Really? Trailer, oh, yeah. <laughs> I hate Melville, but... I loved Moby Dick. <laughs> Once I got going, I was fine. It was just, like I said, at the very beginning, it was kind of like, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm over it now. That's fair so. enough. <laughs> Jen, what about you? Well, I'm sure I'll disagree with myself after I, I answer this three hours later. But, you know, one of the one of the first authors that really struck me in sort of a dual way was um, reading Margaret Atwood for the first time. Mm. And what I really like about her writing is not only is it beautiful and vicious and literary in the sense that it fucks with your feeling intentionally and not just for kicks, Mm -hmm. is that her books are always very, very readable. And for me, ultimately, I want to tell a story that is both like gut deep, but also enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And so I was with Skyglass. I mean, it's certainly not like highbrow literary fiction, but yeah, I wanted it to be both readable and also have some some weight to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I you know I, I don't think I necessarily succeeded, but that was definitely something that was challenging for me and is still kind of, you know like as I'm moving into working on line edits for for the ebook and and the the print edition, it's something that's still occupying my mind and carrying that with me as I as I work through well as I will work through chapter by chapter. I'm like in the middle of grading a bunch of essays for my <laughs> the class I'm teaching. So uh-huh. I'm like thinking about Skyglass in the back of my mind, but not actually putting any of that thought into action. But um, soon. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so I think it, in a way, what that the challenge boils down to is sort of that like, as existential antagonism of just not being good enough and constantly <laughs> worrying about that. <laughs> wow. I think that's a very relatable struggle. <laughs> I hope I'm good yeah, enough. <laughs> I would imagine so. Okay, yes, what was... The, the, this is shit process yeah. you go through after every chapter, you know? Constantly. Oh my god, this is shit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, there's certainly some moments where I was, you know, you read it, or at least I would read it and I'd be like, yes, I am so fucking good. And then, you know, like a minute <laughs> yeah. later, you're like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> delete everything kill it with fire yes yeah phoenix ask for you <laughs> burn your own story so what was your your favorite part and this doesn't necessarily have to be part of the process it can be part of the rewards like holding a book for example <laughs> could be it or hearing from the fans uh well certainly hearing from fans is always always makes me excited like me having a terribly horribly shitty day and get like a single tweet about (laughs) someone today on twitter was talking about body pillows involving marco i was just like what is going on here this is amazing and frightening um so just things like that can i suppose just be really encouraging just Mm -hmm. to know that someone out there is actually reading what I'm writing, Mm. which on one level is really terrifying because again, it goes back to that sort of as existential quandary. It's like, why, why would you, why would you read this? (laughs) It's terrible. But at the same time, it's like, well, I mean, there are 10 chapters in, so it can't be too bad. So (laughs) that's certainly, I mean, I I don't know if that's necessarily my favorite, but it's pretty close to the top of the list. Ellery? Well, I would agree with, with that for sure. I mean, writing anything, it's always, the best when you get someone saying something that you know they liked 
they liked what you wrote. Um, so I, I mean, that's always going to be the most awesome thing. But I mean, I have to say just the fact that I can say to people, I published a novel, mm. <laughs> you know, that is pretty, pretty cool and pretty amazing. And people have such good reactions to it. And it's nice. And also, one really, really positive thing is I can be sitting or when I was doing this, I could be sitting in front of my computer. I could be doing anything, surfing, sending emails, whatever, looking at Tumblr. And I could always say, oh, I'm right. What are you doing? I'm writing. <laughs> you know, it's like I had an excuse to goof off as much as I want, but I'm at the computer. So I'm writing and everyone would give me my space. It was wonderful. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's funny um, or not necessary, not necessarily funny, but interesting Ellery, that you bring up being able to say, I've written a novel. And for some reason, I don't know what it is about myself, but I always feel hesitant about like bringing that up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't bring it up. I, it's so embarrassing, isn't it? It's like, yeah. It's it's just, not, and, it, and it's not like way. so much embarrassing in the fact that like, oh, I devoted like hours and hours to this thing. It's more like, I don't want to like feel like I'm gloating or something. Yeah, I don't know. It's people like... want you to talk about it and talk about yourself. And that's so <laughs> yeah. embarrassing. I find it really embarrassing. Yeah. I just can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, maybe and here I'm doing like... a podcast. So. I, yeah, I know. Exactly. My it's like, social maybe... anxiety. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, exactly. But at least, you know, like I'm here alone in my bedroom. So. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody can see you blush. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it, it is the embarrassment factor. But then when you're forced to talk about it, and someone's like, "Oh, well, what did you what did you do this last year or whatever?" You know, then it's nice to be able to pull that out of your you know your pocket yeah, and say, like, "Well." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell me a little bit about each of your respective processes, because um, you know you're just saying that Jen, like you're alone in your room. Ellery's got kids, which um, most of our creators do not. Although Jen Quick has the unique distinction of she was pregnant when Sparkler started and she was serializing comic, serializing her comic through the end of her pregnancy, like through her childbirth. And then as the child grew, she would continue to draw comics for us. Her her kid is al just about as old as Sparkler because he was born in like issue two or three. And she's been running it almost every single month <laughs> since then. So like this kid is growing up with our magazine, which is kind of a weird comparison to make. But that's how I remember how old he is. <laughs> um, but yeah, like how do you is it difficult for you to find the time, Ellery? Oh, yeah. It is, but I have I am really capable now of filtering out any sort of noise. I mean, I prefer <laughs> solitude, but I can sit through. And I mean, people are like, so my husband is always like, "Why are you ignoring me? Why are you?" You know, <laughs> but it's just because <laughs> I get so into my zone in my head when I'm like telling myself a story in my head or thinking about writing or writing that I just don't hear anything. It's kind of a survival technique when oh, yeah. you have kids around. But my preference is to have total solitude and be on my own. I don't, I usually don't even listen to music, although sometimes the music can inspire me. And But um, generally, yeah, I like it dead quiet, but I can operate if not because, like I said, you just learn to because it's never quiet ever. In a house. How old are your kids? 11 and 7. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to be loud. <laughs> Two boys, so. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you work on, like, a desktop or a laptop? Laptop. Most of the time, well, a lot of the time I, like, sit in my bed <laughs> and do it. I'm mm. super lazy, but... You know, sometimes I'll sit at a desk or something, but I really just like to get as comfortable as possible. And so no coffee shop runs like where you sit in a coffee no, shop? No, you know, I get really distracted. Even like when I was in college and I tried to go study somewhere, if I'd go out and sit at a coffee shop, I wouldn't do anything. You mm. know, I, I really have to be at home. Mm. What about you, Jen? I Well, I mean, I definitely have the same experience where like people in my life just think that I'm ignoring them. 
And I think a lot of the time, this sort of like inward turning focus can be interpreted as apathy or or like just nothingness. And I think mm -hmm. some people don't recognize that as a, as a writer that stillness is actually deep thought. I mean, sometimes it's not. Like, sometimes <laughs> I'm just like daydreaming and coming up with head cannons of all the terrible things I can do to Marco, but um, <laughs> that occupies way too much of my brain power. But in all seriousness, like, it, it really, there is a lot of just silence and, and sitting, though a lot of my thinking happens. Sometimes I'll, I'll go out if I'm like really, really stuck on a plot point, I'll just go out and walk with my iPod that kind of works and record whatever whatever comes to mind. But a lot of my um, thinking when it comes to stories is actually just like when I'm out like on a 25 or 30 mile bike ride, just like as far from the city as I can get within a reasonable amount of time and just like talking to myself constantly. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of alone time when it comes to creating um and i'm just generally an introverted person who doesn't know how to interact properly with other human beings <laughs> um, aren't we all so, so that's awkward but as for other writing processes you know with skyglass it was interesting because leanne wanted me to you know for for part of the novel pitch we um we basically had a small summary for each chapter, which isn't necessarily how I work. I tend to be a, a terribly, like, obsessively organized person, um, which my students are really ex excited about because I actually know when assignments are due, <laughs> um, which is, I guess, helpful. But for writing, I almost purposefully shy away from that just because like one of my some some of my favorite authors I think both this author named Caitlin Kiernan and I think Catherine Valenti has also said this where they don't like planning ahead like really concretely in their stories because they they get bored if they know what's going to happen ahead mm -hmm. of time and so I have this like weird tick stuck in the back of my head where I'm like oh I don't want to be like that because then I'll be a boring writer by knowing what's going to happen in my story and it, I don't know it's this weird connection probably dysfunctional that I make in my head but I I write a lot quicker if I have things outlined but I also enjoy not knowing what's going to happen so for Skyglass I had everything mapped out very very specifically but with one of the novels that I'm working on right now um I'm ba and part of this is just a symptom of being in grad school and teaching is I just don't have the time to sit down and map everything out and luckily the novel that I'm working on right now is basically a bunch of journal fragments woven together so I can just like sit down for whatever like minuscule chunk of time that I have and just like write one of those journal entries and then just tell myself that I'm going to like fit them together later on mm -hmm. but yeah so it, it's it really is just dependent but I I like I think I sort of like the idea of feeling out in the dark and writing wherever the wind may take me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think functionally, I probably write a lot better if I outline. But mm -hmm. I'm resistant to that idea, which is silly of me, probably. Yeah, we didn't hold Ellery to that as strongly, partially because Ellery was, I mean, you launched in issue one. So we were playing things by ear a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of... Just down to the wire, yeah. <laughs> <Do or die. laughs> yeah, adds a little excitement. Uh, but you did have a beginning, middle, and end planned, roughly. So, like, 
And you actually, your approximations, because you were always like, oh, it's going to be like nine or ten. It's going to be nine or ten chapters. And it was. You had a couple chat like interim chapters or transition chapters that I know you were a little worried about because those are the hardest. I mean, right? Yeah. Transitions are just the worst. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> I, I did not want to write that chapter <laughs> at all. It was not fun. The, the good thing about transitions is they can be a good time for character moments. And I think that's what you ended up doing. Um, what I do when I have a problem like that is I usually try to write ahead. I'll skip the boring part and I'll write something that happens later and then ah. go back and fill it in. Because uh, sometimes you just get so blocked and you cannot write what you need to write. So it helps if I, I jump ahead sometimes. Because sometimes you just have dialogue all in your head for like this other scene that's not coming for, you know, however yeah. many chapters. And But it's so good and you're so excited about it. So it just, it helps sometimes if you write that instead first. Yeah. I, I always warn people that there's some people who are like, oh, I really want to write this scene, but I don't want to lead, write the stuff leading up to it. And I think it can be dangerous that if you're skipping sort of the boring parts and just writing the exciting parts, now you're not going to have any incentive to go back and fix it. It's different when you're under deadline, though. Like, if that's something that helps you get over a writer's block when your your editor's breathing down your neck and is like, I need this by next week, um, <laughs> in that exact voice as your editor. <laughs> that's, that's always the voice I imagine in my head when I'm talking about it. In bright red, like, no, no, just add more semicolons, whatever. You know, if, if that's something that works for you, especially if you're not jumping super far ahead, but just like, fuck this scene, I'm going to the next one, and yeah. they'll figure it out later. It um, seems easier to yeah. stitch it together at, at that point. You know, the gap. Yeah, I can see how that would work. That's interesting. I think you guys have given uh, some good insight to kids out there who are like, you know, dream of either publishing a novel or, you know, just what is the process after writing something down? <laughs> what do you do with it? How does it get prepared for distribution? You know, whether self-published or uh, published or publishing company. I mean, uh, I think you guys are, <laughs> I think you're giving a lot of people reason to not be afraid of editors that uh, <laughs> it's good if you can look out on as, a, as an opportunity. Although I think everyone, we will ad you know, admit that it can be hard the first time you read something like that, a uh, either a response, a criticism or an edit, like give yourself a little room to sort of eat ice cream after you read it <laughs> before you go back. <laughs> It always That's took me, opening the document was always the hardest part, you know. Mm. Not that I expected you ever to be really cruel or mean or harsh, I mean, but it's just kind of like, okay, uh, time to open. <laughs> Whereas Jen was really excited to open. <laughs> yeah, I'd just be like, oh, fuck yeah, line edits. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> no really that that was actually i'm not even kidding like that's my reaction whenever i saw my light notes i was like yes oh wow you're like an editor's dream jen okay <laughs> <laughs> yay well i mean honestly like i think i mean i don't think this is true across the board in any shape or form but i feel like really successful writers are just open open to change and the general wisdom of of those outside their school, you know? Mm -hmm. So well, I definitely I, feel like when you can see when in some of these really big writers, you can see when the editorial hand starts to shrink back. Um, I was to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your example, Ellery? It might be the same. We might have the same example. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I'm well, sorry. I was going to say I Harry you Potter. Said Hillary. I'm like, who's Hillary? <laughs> no, uh, I would say Harry, uh, Harry Potter is a good example of, you can tell the editor's getting, you know, like, let the author do what she's going to do. And these books get longer and longer and longer. And yeah. Drag on. And not necessarily in a good way. Um, or I think, because I, I didn't get all the way through the Harry Potter series. Like, what kind of a nerd am I? But I will say that. Well, I, you missed the epilogue. So 
<laughs> yeah. I actually read that pin. I was like, Whoa, this is Why? this is as bad as everybody said. <laughs> um, it is. Though the movie made it even worse. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't. I oh, at movie don't. five, I'm like, I'm fucking done with this. I'm just not a Harry Potter girl. Not to begrudge it, yeah. its success, but I will say that I did read all of the Hunger Games books, and Mockingjay really needed a stronger editorial hand than it had. And I think the editorial hand specifically shrunk back. That they were like, okay, she's this is kind of her opus. She's really big. I don't want to change her words. I don't know if this is because the editor was intimidated and didn't want to say anything. I don't know if it's the author felt like she really didn't need the help. Who knows? I mean, it could be a factor of both things. But when you see that, that it, it's like you, you notice the difference. You know, when somebody starts getting famous. And, and this happened also with the guy who wrote Hannibal. I have to look this up to double check. But there was kind of – I took an editing class many moon ago. And uh, they talked about how he wouldn't allow any of it to be edited before it was published. When he – you know, he'd written whatever the uh, Silence of the Lambs. I'm not sure if that was the name of the original novel. But then years later when he wrote the other book, it like – when he wrote either it was a sequel or a prequel many years later and it had been such a success, he was like, the contract was like, you're not allowed to edit it, not even copy edit it before it goes to print or something. Oh <laughs> it's like, God. yeah, and I can just imagine, you know, the publishing house is like, oh my God, like, you know, when you get demands like that, and sometimes you do. And that's not to say that, you know, again, you can have a bad editor, you can have someone who's kind of crushing your vision uh, or just too short-sighted for what you're trying to attain. But a lot of the time, works are better when they're a group effort. You know, like yeah. art is not created in a vacuum. And just like uh, Susie is uh, your beta reader, Ellery. And Jen, do you have a beta reader, somebody who reads your stuff first? Or I do not, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just me. Oh, maybe that's why the line edits are exciting to you. It's like first yeah, set of eyes on it. Exactly. I mean, for um, for, for Skyglass, I didn't. For short fiction and, and other things I'm working on, I have a writer's group that I'm a, a part of. Oh, great. Um, the town that I live in. So for other things, yes. But yeah, for Skyglass, I did not. Wow. <laughs> it was so great. Both of your books were so great. And the Gauntlet has been out a little while. Hopefully we're doing another Cherry Bomb story for it soon. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we're, we're hitting Cherry Bomb a little bit harder this year. And Skyglass, the ebook, should be out. Should be out in time for Christmas. Uh, and the paperback should be coming out. I'm, I'm roughly saying Christmas ebook. Uh, Valentine's Day paperback. Um, both of you guys are candidates for we might start doing some print versions of some of the Cherry Bomb stuff too. We were looking into some options there to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that people can buy the book and then they can buy the little dirty story bundled with it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of fun so you can have them both in your backpack and one is in the outer pocket and one's in the inner pocket, you know, like you go on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> you both, were, both of you have written Cherry Bomb so far and they were yeah. great. Uh, we have a Dusk and Calivia cherry bomb story that's coming out very soon too. And, what? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't do not tell me this. <laughs> okay. I mean, please. But... <laughs> oh, it's gonna be so good. Yeah, I bet. You guys are, you know, cherry bomb has been a little bit. You know, it's been difficult to get a lot of comics, or you know, because it's always on top of what the creators are already doing, and our comic artists are kind of worn very thin by their schedules because comics are so time consuming. And same thing with the audio; it's just incredibly time consuming. But you pros guys. Uh, there's a lot that you can do relatively quickly for Cherry Bomb, even on top of your schedules, and you you basically all have. <laughs> I mean, like uh, Cinderseed the, was the prequel to uh, Skyglass. We published that before we published Skyglass, mm -hmm. and it's great. <laughs> and then, well, I'm always up for writing prawn, so yeah, I know. Yeah. And and you did, you know, especially um, in the case of Gauntlet, that you know you wrote a story about Cleo and Blackjack, which people were shipping from like chapter one. <laughs> 
Like, before anything had happened, weren't even people in your live journal were like, she's going to get with that guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's a cutie. Yeah, that was a great story. <laughs> <laughs> and even I think the, uh, we did some sexy pinups. I think uh, Tacto did the, did sort of a gauntlet pinup with the jacks. And then she drew a little bit about Cleo and Blackjack. She's like, yeah, 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 totally. Cleo and Blackjack. <laughs> Write the story. She didn't she draw yeah, a little comic some picture. Yeah, and you want mm-hmm. you know we're we're doing the uh, the Kickstarter for that. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and that you want me to show like my mom and my mother in law. <laughs> these people that was like, okay, that's right. That's actually, do- I was just gonna say that's actually pretty funny, Larry, that you bring up relatives because when Cinder Seed came out. I made a post on Facebook about, I don't know, something sort of licentious and, and um, intergalactic fuckery, et cetera, et cetera. And one of my relatives which just like commented and she didn't even understand what was occurring. She was just like, what, what is this thing that you've published? And I just, just, just ignore just... it. You don't have to read it. Okay. If you don't. I feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah. we torture you guys like that. It's, like, it's yeah. not torture to write porn. Well, to then force you to promote it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mind promoting it. I was just, yeah, there's some yeah. parts of the Kickstarter. Poor Ellery. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it would be really uh, great if you I could. Have, I, all the people, half the people from my Facebook page are from Oklahoma. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Say no more. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We had the three-way pick because the Cherry Bomb, we did those pinups with uh, yeah. T and they, they were part of the Kickstarter. I totally forgot I, about that. And I think they got shipped to like my mom and my, my mother-in-law, <laughs> like I said, you know, because that, that was part of the package. Nice. So I don't know what happened to them. <laughs> Maybe they have them hanging up in their room or their closet. <laughs> did they ever bring them up to you or were they like polite? No, no, <laughs> they never brought that part up. <laughs> now they, you know, my mom read it and she really liked the book. Although she oh, thinks good. she insists that I'm Cleo, and that's why I don't like to write girls because they always think that you're writing yourself. I'm like, no, mother. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I Cleo. <laughs> I definitely have a fear of people thinking that Moss is basically just me because yeah. I'm a drummer. Uh, um, but I mean, like, and certainly there's like things that are definitely reflections of myself in, in him and, and lots of characters right i mean you always put a little yeah. piece of yourself yeah exactly exactly not always just writing about myself <laughs> i, I yeah. think people generally think that about authors you're narcissistic yeah. right <laughs> yeah exactly well i think a lot of authors wouldn't think that about you though like i think if somebody's been in that process yeah. even if they do a mary sue or something based off their own life they hit a point mm-hmm. where it's beyond them you know like it's inspired by them or, like you said, Ellery, there's pieces of yourself and a lot of different characters because you're writing from your own experiences. But, yeah, you know, self-insert isn't that common. Uh, not as common as people would like to believe. Yeah. Anyway, great. Thanks, guys. Uh, some Thank really you. good insight from, uh, you know, to published authors. And I think a lot of people who were interested in this process will, will find your stuff uh, inspiring. And I hope they, you know, if if anybody's listening to this and you haven't read either Gauntlet or Skyglass, they're both finished. You should read both of them. They're both awesome in totally different ways. Uh, In case you didn't get that from the book, (laughs) describing the book. It's like a girl in a building versus elves in space, you know. um, Yes. But they both have that great sort of um, female gaze, G-A-Z-E element to them where they really (laughs) appeal to women. The complex characters and the interactions and strong emotional core. But did you want to say anything else before we sign off? Just thank you for the opportunity to to write for Sparkler. It was really um, 
a cool, cool thing to happen to me. And I appreciate it a lot. So thank you. <laughs> what she said. <laughs> and thank you yeah. to the readers for supporting us and supporting these lovely ladies. Yes. Anyone who yeah. ever read it or made a comment about it or left a reply. I mean, I'm too, I feel too stupid to actually like go to the forums and respond back because I don't want to be all stalkery, but <laughs> it always makes my day. So thank you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. I always, I mean, I am always extremely grateful to anyone who comments in the forum or I, I, I get more comments on Twitter, but, and I always have this fear of like, re like I want to respond, but then I'm like, <laughs> yeah. do I don't want to be creepy and I don't want to sound <laughs> stupid when interacting with readers, but I am very, very grateful. So <laughs> you heard that Thank guys you. leave comments. They love it. Yes. <laughs> comments, please. Especially indie publishers. I think these people are not doing it for the money. Uh, they want to know that they're reaching people. So, you know, if you enjoy something, same thing with, you know, anybody reads fan fiction, they say, just please leave a comment. That's kind of the currency we work in. So thank you for everyone who did that. And uh, I hope anybody who has not read the books, now you have something, <laughs> one to two new great things to get into. <laughs> you can read both of them in their entirety online with a couple exceptions or like uh, short stories or cherry bomb stuff exclusive to those lines. But the main text of the, the story is free. And um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, coming on, ladies. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> All right. Take it easy. Bye.